0: So, your first evening, well done so far. Before you can make your first well-deserved scratch on the walls of your cell, uh, I'd like to ask once more for your attention and uh, say something about thinking and thought. Um, You may know or not know this, but uh, Buddhists are actually quite fond of thoughts they think thoughts are powerful uh, they've filled bookshelves of Buddhist teaching in many languages they've encouraged translations um, they're actually quite a, a thought heavy bunch yeah if you look at them sort of from a far enough distance um, Buddhists have really over the centuries contributed a lot to the conceptual noise on the universe. So if you've come here to not think, or if you think meditation is about non-thinking, you're really on the wrong address with Buddhists, because they think um, you should think properly rather than stop thinking. You should take up thoughts that are wholesome, that are useful, thoughts that work, thoughts that are pragmatic, and Buddhists through the ages have held various opinions which thoughts correspond to those criteria. So, very early Buddhist thought is quite psychological, and then there comes a phase where Buddhists are really into logic. When yeah. the Buddha spoke, in the early Pali Suttas, when he spoke of something that is true is something that wise people do not disagree with. In other words, truth is self-evident. Truth is that which does not need any further explanation. Unfortunately, Buddhists couldn't keep going that way, so things changed a little bit in the life of mind in India. And uh, four or five hundred years later, this wasn't enough of a definition for truth anymore. So truth was no longer what was self-evident, what was obvious and what wise people would not disagree with, uh, truth now became something that could something that could not be logically disproven anymore. In other words, truth shifted from actual experience. It shifted into um, falsifiability. Yeah? If it could be falsified, it was obviously not true. If it was true, then you could not disprove it any longer that shifted the whole story from the nature of truth from immediate experience to logical speciality. Yeah. That went on for quite a while and then uh, the meditators took over again in Indian history and they found that um, actually things are not really true just because they can logically no longer disproven. They have to have some footing in, in um, experience again. And the meditators said, well, the longer we meditate, the more we come to think. This whole world is basically mind, mind only. Your logic is mind-made. Your mind is mind-made. The objects of mind are mind-made. The world out there is mind-made. You are mind-made. They quarrel a bit for a few centuries. And then about by the 8th century, they got some compromise going and things went into the next round. And every round produced loads of books. Um, Many of those books were lost in India, but then the Tibetans made up. They made up in a big way. Every wave of Buddhist teaching that came up, was swept up into Tibet, was meticulously translated, tabulated into particular branches of learning. Uh, and then added on to by Tibetan teachers commenting on Indian teachers, being commented on other Tibetan teachers. So, in many ways, if you see, there's a Japanese school of Buddhism, Zen Buddhists, who think that their particular teaching uh, comes Outside of scriptural transmission and it's been directly transmi- transmitted from heart to heart uh, in fact that tradition prides itself a little bit about this uh, it also boasts one or two guys who were famous for having been bur- having burnt the scriptures you know there's famous pictures of so-and-so burning the scriptures to prove that um, wisdom doesn't reside in papers. Um, Ironically, this very same school has probably produced more Buddhist universities than any other school. So, wherever you turn, Buddhists in Tibet, Buddhists in Japan, even the so-called practice Buddhists in the the Southern School of Buddhism have produced abundant libraries. Of the forms of wisdom the Buddha speaks of the three dimensions of uh, wisdom of Panya. The first one is concerned with acquiring information. Uh, It doesn't sound very much like anti-thinking. It's not really a very powerful anti-intellectual teaching. The second form of learning is how to correlate the information you have aggregated, how to put it together, how to think about it properly. And only the third type of wisdom actually speaks of a, a wisdom that does not hinge anymore on learning or on proper thinking. But it is understood that the third type of learning, that third type of wisdom, actually is (coughs) rooted in your conceptual and in your uh, correlated intellectual knowledge. So if you come to Buddhism like I come, through having been fed up with thinking and having I been mean, fed up with the uh, ac- academic attempts to come to uh, terms with life or to master the big existential questions, um, and having found the freedom of not having to believe things and not having to go through scriptures, but to just be able to sit down and practice. And after 20, 30 years of this, you find out, actually, <clears throat> that was very useful for me personally, but that's not actually what he said, you know? things are a little more complicated. You know, these guys have actually had quite a few things to say. And there is a value to thinking. Unfortunately, much of that thinking as we come to encounter it when we try to meditate and (coughs) of our breath is not the the type of thinking we are encouraged to do in Buddhist practice. So let me, uh, after having Acknowledge that there is a great emphasis in Buddhist traditions for learning, for knowledge, not just intuition, you know, downright knowledge. Just knowing to be able to distinguish things, knowing how to put things together, knowing how to keep things apart, knowing how to correlate things. Great appreciation. The Buddha was not an anti-intellectual. And yet, it was very clear that the thought that occurs in the mind that is not a trained type of thinking, that is not a skilled type of thinking, is detrimental to the capacity of the mind to find stillness and happiness. And one of the uh, tools he has offered is how to pacify thoughts that are of no great use. That's what I would like to spend some time on tonight. I'd expect some of you have complained about thinking minds. Um, I would even suspect that those of you who haven't complained occasionally think, when you're encouraged to not think. And I want to look at with you together at a very terse, uh, powerful little teaching buried in the middle-length sayings on the pacification of thought. The term for thought is vitaka, which sometimes it's actually in a positive connotation. In fact, it's even a jhana factor. You know, vitaka is one of the jhana factors, which leaves one to wonder whether my thinking has something to do with jhana experience or whether we have to redefine that term. We leave that for another evening. What does the Vitaka Santana Sutta say? It says... Mm it speaks of five different ways of how to pacify thought. <clears throat> and it graduates these five. Um, they're not quite in the same sequence as I I offered them to you. Uh, I take the liberty to deviate from the actual scriptural teaching, at least in the, in, in the sequence. Um, it suggests five different strategies to deal with thoughts. Now, when we speak of thoughts, we're speaking of recurrent thoughts, we're speaking of tenacious thoughts, we're speaking of thoughts that are clearly unproductive. They do not give rise to energy, they do not give rise to inspiration, they do not give rise to collectedness of mind, they do not give rise to wholesome states of mind. Now, many thoughts you experience do not give rise to wholesome states. What would be the opposite of a wholesome state? Anxiety would be the opposite of a wholesome state. Uh, distractiveness would be the opposite of a wholesome state. Gloominess would be the opposite of a wholesome state. <coughs> Anger would be the opposite of a wholesome state. Depression, um, desire, longing, deprivation. All these would be states of mind that are, um, could be due to unwholesome thoughts. They could also be due to other things, but they could definitely be due to unwholesome thoughts. (coughs) So, if you have any of these, distractedness, gloominess, anger, desire, longing, um, gloominess, depression, anxiety, if you have any of this going, worry in your meditation, then uh, maybe some of this is going to be useful. The Buddha suggests, and he makes a statement about the technique, and then he makes a little analogy to illustrate that technique. And um, let me try to separate this out. So the first technique he suggests is not paying attention. Some of you may know the Buddhists have a clear and fairly neat distinction between attention and mindfulness. That's something the mindfulness world has yet to come to terms with that there is actually a distinction between attention and mindfulness. The Buddhists have that reasonably clear. So the term for attention is manasikara. It's usually encouraged. Yoniso manasikara, understanding things from their root, is a very powerful investigative tool. It's greatly encouraged. It's the source of awakening. It's the source of many, many wholesome states. It's the source of wisdom, to be clear. And yet, in that very first technique, how to deal with thoughts that are detrimental to our collectedness of mind, that are detrimental to wholesome states, we are encouraged to not pay attention, to specifically and selectively disattend to certain thoughts. If you allow me to play with your language a little. Not paying attention, and the analogy that we are given for that is as if a person walking along, meeting somebody else, and closing one's eyes. So, not seeing this person. Now, that's a very elegant technique. As long as you can use this technique for your thoughts, just kind of, they emerge, they come and try to talk to you, and you just close your eyes and do not say hello. You do not shake hands. You do not engage with them. You let them go past. That's the most elegant, the most um, energy efficient and powerful technique. As long as you can use that, keep using that. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are doing. My thoughts, they do not just kind of occur. They, they want a relationship. The relationship is, they're generally appealing to me. They say, do something. Think me to the end. I'm important. Don't just sit around here. Uh, I'm the last one of my thoughts. Bad things will happen if you don't respond to me. Take me serious. Believe me. I don't know what your thoughts are doing, but mostly mine have this kind of appeal character. They want something. And then, you know, you can say, yeah, I hear you, the kind of, you know, you do a nod, a sort of meditator's nod, I hear you, that doesn't mean I believe you, it's just I hear you, yeah, I acknowledge that you have registered. And the temptation of it is going beyond that, yeah. I hear you, and yes, you're right, I believe you, no, you're not right, I prove you why, and so forth, and we're in. Yeah. So, our technique suggests, instead of actually entering into debate with that thought, either by believing it, or disproving it, by arguing it, by doubting it, by running along with it, by anxiously cowering in front of it, by, you know, falling onto our knees and praying to it, you know, all these would be types of relationship our thought incites us into. Instead of doing all this, we just close our eyes. And wait for a moment. And lo and behold, <laughs> it goes on the big pile where all, all thoughts previous have gone. See, We all know from experience, none of these thoughts have made us happy. None of this, them have, let, have left us really content. Um, whatever they say, none of them has taken us to the end of thinking. The worst ones really tell you things like that. Think me to the end and I will leave you in peace. What we know of thought is they are arising, they have many, many siblings, you give them your energy and they procreate. Like cabbages are like rabbits, it's the rabbit days, isn't it, it's the rabbit season. So, thoughts are like rabbits, they produce more thoughts. Rabbits produce more rabbits. The purpose of rabbiting is having more rabbits. The purpose of thinking is producing more thinking. And the more you think, even clever thought, ingenious thoughts, all this can be turned into doubt. That was a major insight I had when I read (coughs) one of my teacher's first book. In that says, you know, everything you think of, everything you have learned, all this becomes father for doubt. However true it may be, it can turn into doubt at any moment. If your mind is so inclined, every piece of information you have can turn against you. Now, ponder a moment, is this true? If you know a lot about mental illness, you know, you can think here, sit here and think, well, what's that strange? Am I kind of
1: perceptually
0: going off? Is this, you know. Is this already pathological? You know, is this, is this just scatterbrained or am I actually hatching out the psychosis here, you know? People have gone off on meditation retreats, you know, I've heard this, I've seen this. Is this one of those? Is this the clear beginning of the troubled end? If you know a lot about the, you know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you know a lot what can go wrong with knees sitting still for hours on end can't be good for your knees if your knee starts hurting you know you have lots of ammunition to think what could go wrong in your knee you know, you know okay there's <clears throat> tibia fibula there's a patella there's you know, inner the meniscus outer the meniscus there's a lot of cartilage in there you know you if you know that in detail you start you, st- you start having really good good material to come into things that might go wrong. If you've seen lots of things that have gone wrong, obviously, you know, you're slightly mistrustful in your attention. This is called vigilance, yeah? Attention, which is mistrustful, is, it's called vigilance. It's not to be mistaken with mindfulness. Mindfulness is a benign quality. Vigilance makes you controlled, makes you frown, makes your shoulders go up. And makes you anxiously skim the horizon for bad things that might happen. Yeah? This we should not confuse these things. So the more you know about the anatomy of your knee, the more you can think of things that might go wrong. It's a powerful and sobering insight that every piece of information you have so hard worked to obtain, to remember, to use, to associate with, to make sense of, that every such piece of information can turn into an enemy, within the mind that this think in unskillful ways. Though it does make sense that we do not deliver ourselves to the power of thought. And yet we cannot control it. I cannot control my thoughts. I don't know what you can, but I can't. I have learned a few tricks. I've, I don't just follow them. You know, I kind of... They have to somehow prove useful. Or they have to behave, yeah. You know? Um And if they, if they don't prove useful, I've learned to change my relationship to them. I don't let them in. Or I don't um, inv- invite them. Or I kind of... I open the other door as well, so they come in and they go out straight away. I don't latch on to them. I'm not willing to believe simply because it's happening in my mind. Just because I think it, I'm pretty clear it doesn't mean it's either useful, or it's true, or it's important. I have found myself to be thinking a lot of things that are untrue, not useful, and certainly not important. So, it's probably safe to assume that some of your thoughts, if your mind resembles anything like mine, that some of your thoughts also are probably not true just because you think them. Now sometimes we have an attitude to our thoughts as if because something in there pipes up actually this is the truth about a kinship, or the truth about Susie or Fred or Peter. It sounds childish isn't it? And yet we all suffer from this. We wake up at night and suddenly we find yourself uh, ensnared by all kinds of Um, thinking patterns, things about things which we can't do anything about right now because we're actually lying in bed trying to sleep. But there it is, our future unravels right in front of our inner eyes and we're planning things and yet we're not even sitting upright let alone capable of doing something about the things we think about. So it's probably good to learn a few strategies strategy to close your eyes and let things go past is a good strategy. It's particularly effective with things that don't have a major charge. Stray thoughts that just kind of come, you know, knocking. Some thoughts are like cats. If you feed them, they come around. If you stop feeding, they they come around, but a bit less often, you know. If you're fairly strict with not feeding, they come and check you out once, twice a month. And we can learn to do that. We can learn to be with thought in different (laughs) ways than fighting them, believing them, following them. These are the most habit we have developed around thought. Because our educational systems are so strong in feeding, in encouraging associative thought, in encouraging verbalization, in encouraging, you know, projecting ourselves into the world with the help of discursive patterns, um, we have invested a lot of time into thinking. We have concepts. My friend John Peacock, who speaks Tibetan, tells me that Tibetans who happen to be Buddhists, uh, they don't actually have many very words for emotional states. You know, While we have loads of words for gloominess, melancholy, depression, d- dysphoria... Um, Tibetans apparently have only very few words, basically sad and happy. Now, we have really exercised that skill, isn't it? Various degrees of subtly-tinged nostalgia. Yeah. Or how are you feeling, Akinjana? A trifle modeling, maybe. <laughs> We've got real some flavors for this, for states state of... Uh, Basically, unhappiness, degrees of unhappiness. Now, because our systems of education and our societies and our communicational patterns and now with the digital revolution, we have almost endless ways of uh, multiplying all this. We are deeply invested in discursive activity. And this discursive activity turns out to be not very useful for much of happiness, In fact, much of clarity, much of insight, and uh, certainly not uh, useful for stillness. So we need, because we can't stop thinking, remember thinking is a natural phenomenon, it's not just a neurotic outburst of your mind. The Buddha is quite clear, the natural procedure for something that we pick up through our senses, that we uh, serialize in perception, that we respond to affectively with feeling tones of pleasant and unpleasant. The next step is that we conceptualize it, that we arrive at a perception, a percept. It's very neat in English. Perceptual process leaves you with a percept, out of which you're then going to form sooner or later a concept. And this is the natural way how the mind works. It's not enough to taste strawberry. We want to know something about the strawberry. First of all, what it is called, where it is from, how much it costs, who is planting them. We cannot live in a world where we are just immersed in pure sensory experience. This is not enough. While we seek the immediacy of that experience, and meditation teachers encourage you to say, go to the immediacy of breath experience, for example, this is not enough in our lives, isn't it? We seek meaning. We want a story. We're really into a narrative. We want a story. This story is about me. Me is a character that exists in time. It's a guy who has been born some time ago and hopefully lives a long, full life. And that me somehow moves in time, although it's completely fictional. it's, It's built up of all kinds of constructs, sense, experience, volitional impulses, um, you know, consciousness, uh, perceptual apparatus that operates. Um, <clears throat> I like to believe that there is such a guy, and I think a lot about him. He preoccupies my mind. It's quite shocking how much I think about myself. I don't know how it is for you, but uh, I remember in my early days of meditation, I acknowledged to myself that 95 of the thing, 95% of the things I would think of in meditation, where I was supposed to not be thinking, was thinking about people. And uh, a substantial chunk of those people was I. And the real tragic thing is that this guy doesn't exist, you know. I mean, there's something there, I'm not denying there's something there, but it doesn't exist in the way I think about it. On good days, I think he's a very privileged fellow. You know, that privileged upbringing, nice life, good friends. Many good things have happened to him. On bad days, I think he's a catastrophe, you know. Mm-hmm. There he is sitting on his bum, 35 years as a meditator, still getting angry. Mm-hmm. You know, one failure after the other. It's a miracle that the earth hasn't opened up and swallowed him. Yeah? So which one is true? I'm pretty convinced neither of them. But still, both of them tell, yes, I am true. This is the real one. It probably makes sense to learn strategies to distance oneself from thinking. So let me go back to the sutta, and let's go to point two. Try to use the point one as long as you can. It's the the most elegant way. Just see whether it's still there in a minute. Just close your eyes, go back to the breath, and let it pass. The image that comes to mind is an image coming coming from the Zen tradition. Image is the Blue Mountain and the White Cloud. The Blue Mountain is the Blue Mountain and the White Cloud is the white cloud. So the Blue Mountain does not struggle with the white cloud. It does not try to catch the cloud, stop the cloud, it does not long for the cloud, it does not quarrel with the cloud. The Blue Mountain stays the blue mountain. Sometimes there are many white clouds and sometimes there are none. It does not snicker at it. The cloud is moving and the mountain is remaining. They, two are different. The mind is quite similar. The mind and its objects are dissimilar. If the mind is very turbid, if it is very confused, if it is very high-pitched, if there is pain or volume, intensity, Distractedness, strong emotions, then the water is muddied. Imagine that water in the glass. If we put that glass still for a moment, and after a while, the sand, or whatever is in that water, starts to fall to the ground. The water becomes more and more clear. The same holds true for the mind and its objects. If the mind objects are many, and are moved around fast, then it feels like the objects in the mind are actually the mind. But they just obstruct our vision to the ground of the mind. If we wait for a moment, the objects start to separate out and we recognize the mind is not its objects. We've we've mistaken the objects of mind with the ground of mind. That's what's happening. If we do a lot of thinking, then it feels like when we turn inward, all there is is thinking. I can't feel a breath because there's so many thoughts in there. Somebody said today. So, there is, I'm sure you're breathing. I'm pretty confident you're breathing. And if you reframe your attentional focus away from the thoughts, you will find your breath. You don't have to stop thinking. All you have to do is to look in a different way and maybe to look elsewhere. Now, one of the challenges with reframing attentional focus is we are geared to attend to thoughts. Because we are geared to attend to thoughts, it means that our attention already anticipates phenomena of experience that resemble thoughts. In other words, they are reasonably sharp, They're reasonably flitting, they say what they mean, and they move, they connect. Now we've decided to not look at thoughts or not be giving our attention to the thinking process. Instead, we want to feel the body. Let's assume we have made this decision. So we shift the attention away from the thought corner to the body corner. But still, we haven't reframed our attentional focus. We're just looking in a different place. But our gauge, our mesh, our attentional mesh is still geared for thoughts. That we're looking, trying to find body sensations with the same gauge with which we were dealing with thoughts. It means that we just won't find anything clear. Body sensations are not very clear often. Some of them are quite diffuse and amorphous. They don't flit around. They're very slow. Most of them are. Um, They're not very declarative. They they don't talk to us. They don't have a story. So it's not enough that I have to stop looking at thoughts and start looking at body sensation. I have to actually look in a different way. I have to reframe my attentional gauge. So if we just shift the attention from one corner to another corner, hoping to find body sensations that appear to us in the same clarity, in the same precision, in the same nature as the thought processes move, then we find ourselves quite frustrated. We find there's just nothing there. Nothing is happening. I've been looking. I don't actually feel anything. I keep having people who tell me that they don't feel body sensations. And then I ask them... You know, very simple things. They say, I get annoyed. I say, whoa, where do you get annoyed? Tell me more. I say, well, it's kind of here. You know, I say, ah, (laughs) what what are you feeling there? Tell me more. (laughs) They say, finally, it turns out they feel quite a lot, but somehow they have decided this doesn't count. Yeah, these are not proper body sensations. This is just some stuff I feel, but it's not what I'm supposed to be feeling. So, ah, you have things you're supposed to be feeling. Tell, tell me more about this. Yeah. And we gradually find out that basically they feel quite a bit. Uh, for some reason they have decided this is not what they're supposed to be feeling. That this doesn't qualify as a proper meditation object. And they're doing it wrong. Yeah. And all it needs is slightly different gauge of attention. And they're, you know, they're in the game. So... If you have such feelings about your own meditation practice, consider that you may widen, need to widen your, your way of attending to things. You may slow down. If you're interested in body sensations, you need to slow down the way you attend to things. You can't just take it by the gauntlet and say, hey, who are you about? You know, Are you true or are you not? That doesn't work. You need to kind of move in there. You need to resonate. You need to... Touch. you need to be able to not know you need to be able to hover I love that word just go there and hover it's um, It's this beautiful image Tibetan teacher uses the image you go to the clearance and you just wait you're highly attentive what's happening and you do not know what's going to come you don't have an object yet all you can do is be prepared, be attentive, and wait. There's some rustling in the woods. You don't know how, whether it's big or small, whether it's dangerous or harmless, but you know something's there, and you are attentive to something that has no shape yet, that has no contours yet. How willing are you to do this? Usually, in our sort of conditioned way of attending to things, Uh, I'm not just attending to anything, you know, I have my little conditions. It has to have some certain seductive value before I attend to it. It has to promise to be interesting. It has to be, it has has to be, it has to promise to somehow be gratifying. It has to promise to validate my self-construct in some way, you know, I'm not just going to give my attention to just anything. I have, I'm a discerning customer, you know, i I have some demands here before I go. So that's what I do. You know. Before I read a newspaper, I want to know what I'm getting in for. You know, it has to be a good newspaper. Before I eat something, I want to make sure it's something decent, good quality. Something tasty. Something I know. Maybe something I precisely don't know. I don't want the things I already know. I want the things I don't know yet. You know? So we do these little games, isn't it? We are not just bestowing our attention wholeheartedly. We have some, there's some little deals there. You know? And it's uh, maybe useful to make public or to yourself public what the deals are. You know, What are the expectations? What are my conditions before I'm going to pay my attention to a crummy old breath? Yeah. You know? Little breath, show what you've got, you know, show your metal. You know what what do you offer, little breath? If I pay my precious attention to you, are you gonna take me to Jhana right away right away? Are you not? And I'm not gonna pay my attention to you. I continue my holiday fantasy a little further. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe something like that is going. Who knows? If you suspect that some of the stuff that's going on is not actually making you happy or enlightened or even content or still, then you may be more interested to actually distance yourself from thought or still pacify some of these thoughts. While we cannot stop thinking, we can certainly feed it and we can certainly direct it. So the second type of strategy um, tells us that... When we have a tenacious thought that has an energy that, we, that takes us into an unwholesome direction, in other words, making the mind craving for things or making the mind angry or making the mind doubting or anxious or, or gloomy, then we try to get the energy of that thought and try that thought, turn that thought from something unwholesome into something wholesome. Yeah? This is a kind of Aikido. Technique, yeah, if you know, or you take the energy of someone and you turn it into something good. Ajahn Chah, a wonderful Thai teacher, had a very poignant saying, and he says, "If it's not good, let it die. If it doesn't die, make it good." <laughs> yeah. I, f- I find that ingenious. Yeah. If it's not good. I do not give it energy and I let it die. If for reasons I have no influence right now, it doesn't die, I have to take the challenge and turn it into something good. If, If it goes away by not feeding it, it's taken care of. If it doesn't go away by not feeding it, obviously something more is called for. I have to transform it in some way. So the second stage is basically taking a wholesome, an unwholesome thought, and trying to turn it into a wholesome one. Now, if this is a thought connected with desire, I may consider that what looks so desirous or attractive is actually not. Yeah. Um, there's various ways you can do that. You may consider the disadvantage of something. Yeah? classic Buddhist contemplation, taking the aspect of adinavadi, the disadvantage of something. Take that up and see, you know, how long do I have to work for this? How many of those ha- have I already had and haven't let me, have left me high and dry? Um, how long will it last? You know, well, my sister the other day said, you know, taste something, uh, five seconds in your mouth, uh, five hours in your stomach, five months on your hip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a pretty, pretty stark reflection. Isn't it? She isn't the Buddha's contemplative, <laughs> but I th- thought that was quite neat. <laughs> brings brings a perspective of eating a sweet. <laughs> brings a fairly new perspective. <laughs> How many miles do I do I have to jog to get rid of that one? Yeah. yeah. So, the thought of attraction is a perception. Now, that perception hinges on a value frame. If you fiddle a little bit with that value frame, what looks attractive suddenly doesn't look attractive anymore. Um, With human beings, if some of your desire focuses on human beings, then attraction is is generally a question of distance and very uh, skillful editing. (laughs) By going a little closer, for example... Yeah? Uh, you will notice that what seemed reasonably attractive suddenly loses that attraction. Just You don't even have to do something uh, big to it. Just go a little closer. Yeah? Or you just have to reframe a little bit. Yeah? A smile that stops too short, or a joke that isn't quite as sweet as it looked in the first place, or... Um, um, you know, a kindness that seems a little too calculated or uh, one of those fabulous blonde hairs that suddenly you find in the sink rather than on her head, you know, all this it's just a little reframing of the experience suddenly puts a complete different light on it looked at my, while shaving looked, it kind of, was quite chuffed with my shave the other day, you know, kind of Got a new little mirror that magnifies five times, and I kind of looked a little closer at my skin under five quintuple magnification. And what seemed like a smooth shave was 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 rather a mess. You know, just kind of scarred bits of skin, <laughs> just magnified five times. What what felt to my hand, a smooth shave, and left me chuffed, was was actually quite um, um, you know. Uh, Chopped up pieces of epidermis and it uh, was, was not the present sight. I was quite shocked, actually. I was shocked how fooled my fingertips could be when actually my eyes, with a little magnification, could see all kinds of uh, things that were not smooth. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't take much fantasy. You know that human beings are only really beautiful under very <laughs> rarefied conditions. We all know that. Yeah. And when we perceived them to be Highly beautiful. Generally, there's usually a degree of desire involved and some very, very selective editing and perception, perceiving of things. With things, sometimes uh, the uh, disadvantage is less easy to see. There are things we crave for safety, for example. Safety looks good. In a world of change, in a world of responsibility, safety looks really good. Uh, we, we need it, you know, developmentally we need it. We need things to be safe. Things are not safe, we all know that, and yet we need it. Yeah? We're really in a bind there. You know? If we're responsible, we, we have a job to make things safe for people who depend on us. Kids or employees or novices or who knows what. Yeah? If we're having people who depend on us, we have a, a responsibility to make things is safe. I feel responsibility to make this safe for you. In fact, you may think I'm here to teach. Most of what I think is and what I think about is making things safe. While you think I'm going to rehearse my talk, I'm actually going out there to check whether somebody has replaced that damn light bulb, which was dead last night, so that you don't stumble out of here tonight. Yeah? So my concern uh, is making things safe for you. And I'm sure you make things safe in your life for other people. We all do that. So we need safety. It's good to look for the safety of things, and yet we know uh, the things that our happiness depend on can't really be made safe. We can look after our health, but that doesn't stop our friend from getting a diagnosis. we can make safety procedures and that doesn't stop that those very safety procedures make it possible that somebody can fly a plane into a rock face. Um, There's no way you can make things safe against people who are not willing to make things safe for themselves. So, safety can look really attractive. And yet, are we not happy? people who are safe are not necessarily happy. I come from a country where things are quite safe and, uh, you know, an over-average degree of people are unhappy there. Switzerland doesn't look good in terms of, you know, the standard ratings for uh, societal happiness. If you look for adolescent suicide, depression rate, pharma- pharmacological consumption, <laughs> what people, what people re- self-report, how happy they are. Yeah. So safety attractive as it may seem is not actually guaranteed that it feels good when we get it we may feel constricted we may feel bored we may fall asleep in parts of our life and lose vitality and meaning so how do how do i look i may look at this i may look and think well oh, the things that i worked so hard for have not actually delivered i may reframe some of the stuff and i i have maybe obtained after much sweat and labor, and see and ascertain that they have not given me what I have expected they would give me. Safety is quite okay. Strawberries are quite okay. If I expect happiness from either strawberries or from safety, I'll be let down. There's no doubt. Strawberries can be very good at being strawberries. At giving me fulfillment, they're not very good. Five seconds. So there's a cleft there, somewhere between what something can deliver and what I expect of that thing. This contemplation, the disadvantage of something, lets me acknowledge some of the discrepancy there. Sometimes it's, per- it's useful to uh, investigate into the amount of effort something that is needed to obtain something, or the amount of fight that is needed to defend something And it looks a lot less attractive. Considering the degrees of of desire relished, the degrees of comfort experienced, the degrees of safety um, held in previous situations may teach me that even when I got this, I was not happy. I've left it behind. I've moved on. I've become restless or bored with it. So those contemplations may help to stave off an unwholesome thought. If it's an angry thought, the most powerful thing for me is compassion. The scriptures in the commentaries teach that we should practice metta for uh, anger. (coughs) And i found this is true in terms of prophylaxis. So metta, loving-kindness, friendliness as a practice. If the heart is reasonably neutral, it makes it more difficult for anger to land and to put down roots. Metta as an intervention technique is not very effective. If your mind is already angry, if anger has already taken root, then metta doesn't really seem to work. It's an excellent preparation for the mind not becoming angry. But once, when you need an intervention tool, then compassion seems to be much more powerful. Usually it's human beings that make us angry. It's rare that, uh, you know, the carpet makes you angry or so. <laughs> it's not impossible, but it's generally, it's generally human beings that seem to get, a, get our goat. So if we're angry with a human person, then we usually do something we caricature them. We reduce them. We take away many, many of their features. They become grimaces. What used to be a face becomes a grimace. We dehumanize people we are angry about. So compassion does the opposite. It acknowledges that actually this person that right now makes me angry uh, shares with me an awful lot of things. I have a lot more in common with that person than... uh, that separates me from that person. In other words, I acknowledge the humanity of that being. And as soon as I have re-established that being in its humanity, I cannot really cast it from my heart anymore so strongly. It is no longer possible to completely dehumanize this person. I recognize, oh God, she's afraid as I am. She's suffered losses. You know, he, he feels bad about things he has has done not well, he has worked hard and, you know, I I recognize myself in the other. And as soon as I do that, it's very difficult to completely throw them out of my heart as anger demands or as anger incites. So by acknowledging the humanity of somebody, I can get in touch with the part of my heart that is less endangered of, of anger that is more soft, that is more willing to let the other person be in my life rather than trying to push him or her out. The third tool is interesting. So the image, the analogy actually, that goes with that technique is the analogy of uh, if you, with this, with a with a small peg, you are hammering out a big peg. Yeah, like the the image of a carpenter that has a, a wedge somewhere that is blocked, and with a smaller wedge, he hammers out the bigger one. Or another image uh, doesn't occur in that sutta, but it does occur in another text with taking out the uh, the prick in my finger with the needle. So something that is quite similar to that which injures me uh, the, is it a pin Probably a pin huh? you remove that which is foreignness to your body with a needle yeah splinter. splinter, thank you yeah so the splinter in your in, in, in your finger you remove with something that resembles that splinter obviously you remove it without putting in the pin yeah, yeah. so. The third of the strategies is an interesting one. um, Let me start with the image. The image is saying um, as if a young man or a young woman, fond of adornment, were to go to a feast and wanted to beautify himself or herself. And instead of putting on garlands and ointments and things that prettify this person, he or she would put on the carcass of a dead dog or a dead snake. Yeah, So, that's the image. And the thought is, I appeal to my better knowledge of myself and say, look, this thought, which now has invaded my mind and which suggests itself that I follow it and give my energy to it, this thought is counter to my better knowledge. It is counter to my goals. It leads me to a place where I know it will be pain. It leads me to a place where I know there will be shame, there will be no happiness to be found. If I give myself to that thought, if I allow my attention and my energy to be preoccupied with that train of thought, I will land in a place where I'm not going to be happy. Okay. I don't know how it is with you, but my mind is not very original. Many of the thoughts I, I feel are coming up, I know pretty well where they beach me, you know, two minutes later. Yeah. It's not difficult to see where they go. Some of them will take me to some uh, familiar old grumpy spots. Some of them will take me to some forms of desire and longing that remains unfulfilled. Some of them will re- take me to some gloomy areas. Some of them will make me doubt and leave me helpless. Many, many of my trains of thoughts I have ridden many, many times. You know? I've rode on many times. You know? So, contemplating that giving my energy to this particular train of thought takes me to a place where I do not want to go. Yeah. It's quite motivating no, not to actually abstain from boarding that train. You know? Boarding the train to Grumpy Land. Boarding to lay the train to uh, uh, Tristania, or boarding the train to some, uh, you know, shaw, a beach where I where I am kind of helpless. And with the, with some practice, when you look at some of the recurrent, the cyclical nature of some of your thinking, you recognize I've done this many times. I've thought this. I've, you know, I followed this track. I've 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 honed this neural pathway quite a bit. I'm not going to do this anymore. Thank you very much. I take the... I wait for the next one. <laughs> yeah. And just by saying so, this one goes past. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a very powerful method. It, it appeals. Yeah. You, it, you appeal to your better knowledge. You appeal to another part of your mind which has an experience that We sometimes displace. We displace what we already know. We know a lot more than we admit to. Your mind knows a lot more. Your heart knows a lot more than you admit. When we're hard-pressed, we shrivel to a small part of ourselves. We all know this. If this mind is capable of happiness, why am I not permanently there? If I know how to find energy, why am I bored? Why am I sleepy? Why am I uh, listless? We all know that we can be vitalized. And we forget. We forget. So we appeal to ourselves, to to the wider part of ourselves, to the deeper knowledge of ourselves, and say, look, you already have done this. You know where this is going. You don't need to do this again. This hasn't delivered. It hasn't made you more true, more real, more free, more happy, more loving. How about just take another in-breath and let that train go by? So that was strategy three. Strategy four is a very psychological one. Let me start again with the analogy first. It It is a man who is running and... While running, he, th- he thinks, oh, I'm running. How? How if I was running a little slower? Yeah. And then he starts running more slowly. Yeah. He thinks, well, I'm still running. Is it possible to just walk? How about if I just walked? And then he just walks. And then he walks and he thinks, well, maybe I can walk more slowly. And so forth. Yeah? You get the picture. So it is an acknowledgment of what I'm doing. It is an acknowledgement of my own contribution to the process that, I, right now, I feel is unwholesome. I'm trying, while I can't stop this, by order I can gradually start to wean my mind away from this. Yeah. I can gradually influence this. Sometimes I can do this by making fun of it. Yeah. So you can just you have a, an average little grumpy thought. And instead of just following an average little grumpy thought, you dramatise it. Yeah, you make it a big statement. You know? Wrong type of jam in the morning breakfast. You know? Things cannot continue that way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Very hard to take that one serious, isn't it? One fifth of the world population in hunger. One third, you know, qualitatively malnourished suffering from cognitive malnutrition, God knows how many, you know, one and a half million refugees in, from Syria and Jordania alone, you know, and I'm, I'm going to make a fuss about the wrong type of jam on my breakfast plate? Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to take that one serious, is it? So sometimes taking the earnestness out of it by making fun of some of this. You know. I used to, I, I had a uh, I have a dramatic mind, so I, I do this a lot. I, I kind of change voices, you know. I kind of, sometimes you, you hear your mind, you understand where things are coming from, not by listening to your thoughts, but actually by listening to the voice which speaks in that thought. You know? so, some of them are moaning deep from below the kidneys kind of moans, you know, and you listen, would I believe a voice that speaks like that if he spoke on the radio or if he, you know, if, he, if I was on the counter somewhere and he spoke to me that way, would I give my attention to this? Would I give my credence to this? Said, no, no way. Yeah. Where somebody are complaining or angry or, you know, whinging, or you, you hear the sound behind the thought, and you realize if somebody spoke to me that way I would immediately spot where this is coming from. You know this is grumpy from Seven Oaks or <laughs> you know this is ang- anxious from <laughs> anxious from Peachesfield or you know something like <laughs> we would immediately spot the emotion behind that thought and by doing that suddenly it takes the credibility of the thought away it takes the credibility of the message away And uh, obviously also the charge of that thought is lost. Uh So while I'm not able to completely stop it, maybe I'm able to, you know, just shift the direction a tiny bit. In Aikido, you don't block people. You just kind of move aside and then you do three, three degrees of deflecting a movement. Three degrees is way, way enough, you know. You don't need to actually block the whole movement and stop it. You just move aside and you just... Just a tiny bit. <laughs> yeah, that's enough. It goes past you. So the same with thoughts. You don't actually need to stop it and blot it out and make it never think again. Yeah, there's no need to do that. It's hard to do. Um, and it's unhealthy. But, you know, just let this go past. You know. Thank you very much. No, I'm not taking it. Yeah. And it's gone. So we're getting more dexterous with dealing with thoughts. Number four, strategy tells us to exert whatever influence we can have on that thought and acknowledge our contribution in this. This thought does not take place without our doing. Even if what we think is highly undesirable, something in there has to do with our doing. If we can do it, then we can also do it differently. We may not be Not doing it on the spot, but we certainly, we may be able to unhinge it a little bit. And once we have only a little bit influenced it, we're out of the helplessness. We're out of the victim position. And much of our struggle is not just against the thing that is unpleasant, but it's against feeling helpless, feeling victimized by patterns of experience, patterns of habit, um, situational and psychological So, strategy number four asks us to own up. What is my influence in this? And can I exert that influence to somehow alter this? Maybe it's still not pleasant. Maybe it's still there. But I have done something and I have altered it. And it has changed. And if I can change it a little, I can change it a lot. There's a powerful or better, an empowering message in there. Strategy number five is the least desirable. And let me end with this. It says, again, the image first is as if a strong man would grab a weak man by his shoulder and pin him down to the ground. Um, And the uh, wording of the text is quite uh, quite powerful. It says, uh, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the palate, he overcomes mind by mind, yeah? In other words, you suppress an impulse. Last-ditch strategy. Um, necessary. I'm very grateful for this strategy. If you have violent impulses cropping up in your meditation, I'm very grateful that you're willing to suppress these impulses. Say, If you have the impulse to slam doors or hit your neighbours, I am really, really like to encourage you to completely suppress such impulses. Not because suppression is such a great or elegant thing, it's not, but it makes things safe. Civilization hinges on your willingness to suppress certain impulses and uh, domesticate your instincts. Just let's be straight about this. Suppression has a lot of bad press, but uh, it's quite useful. It makes things a lot safer for many of us. Now, the difference between suppressing things and repressing things or denying things is a crucial one. When you suppress something, you do not allow an impulse to emerge into the field of action by speech, by body and behavior, or by focalized mental uh, determination. You allow it to take place in your inner sphere of psychological experience you let it to be be an inner experience, but you do not let it become karmically active outside. And you know that you're doing this. That's the important one. You suppress one, there's something buried and you plant a flag. You know there's a flag we've got to go back there someday and, and dig and see what happened there. That's what suppression is like. Denial or uh, displacement, is doing the same without the flag yeah and it says nothing has happened there there wasn't any, there, there wasn't ever anything happening there yeah business as usual there's a crucial difference there while suppression is clearly needed displacement is dangerous because you you know where things go when you displace them they you meet them in in your dreams or they catch you at moments when you're not on your guard uh, or they beset you in other ways Uh, You suddenly start seeing them in other people and railing against them in other people what you have not acknowledged in yourself. We know this. So let us make this distinction. The last-ditch resort, if you have self-destructive or destructive impulses coming up in your meditation, uh, I'm grateful if you suppress them, just to be very blunt. At the same time, obviously this is a very muscular sort of approach to practice. It is taking a lot of energy. It is not really giving you good chances for peacefulness and stillness of mind. And it will need investigating. Sooner or later, when things are safer, when you're in a better space, you will need to investigate what has happened there. So I'm not encouraging displacement. In fact, meditation is a lot about making things safe enough that stuff you have displaced is allowed to emerge. Yeah. Meditators tend to think this is a bad thing. It's not working, this meditation stuff. Meditation teachers are quite happy with this. They say, oh, it is working, look, she's feeling safe enough to get all these bad feelings. She's de-placed, displaced for years. Yeah. This is not what she wanted to get, and she would never have come if we told her before. <laughs> but actually the practice is working. Yeah. So. Uh, Take this what is useful to you immediately, forget the rest, and come back if there is need. Um, Let me end for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.